It's 1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, did you hear Eric mention that we're on FM now as well? That was the big news that happened while I was on vacation last week. We have an FM translator, and a lot of people say to me, what does this mean? Are you going to be an FM jock now? And it's no, 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 no. AM620, the biggest stick in the state, continues to operate. But believe it or not, there are some people who do not know that there is this thing called an AM dial out there. And so by... You know, now having this what we call a translator, you know, you can pick up a simulcast of this show on um, 103.3 on your FM dial as well. Now, it's not as broad a signal as WTMJ, which reaches three quarters of this state and many neighboring states, as well as you can get us on the Internet and all. But it is something else and it's an enhancement. I call it additive. And I know a lot of people driving around are just uh, checking it out. So you can set your presets on your FM dial to 103.3 and of course, we're always here on 620 WTMJ as the biggest stick in the state. All right, let's get started. And by the way, we are still monitoring what is going on in the trial of Devin Kramer. She is the Brown Deer police officer who was charged, charged with a felony in connection with her interaction with a guy who was... Well, out of control on a public bus back in 2016, the trial lasted approximately two weeks. The jury got the case on Monday. Yesterday afternoon came and said that they were deadlocked. They they were not able to reach a verdict. The judge in this case gave what is what is known as the Allen charge. It, It goes back to a United States Supreme Court case, which says essentially no other jury could do a better job than you guys can go back try to reach a verdict continue to deliberate see if you can can get a solution as a general rule you can give that charge once um after that if the jury comes back and says we're at an impasse we we can't reach a verdict what typically would happen is you would declare a mistrial and then the prosecution would decide whether they want to try to try the case again so anyways the allen charge the try to reach a verdict charge was given yesterday afternoon the jury um did go back continued their deliberations came back this morning sometime mid-morning sent a note to the judge saying we're, we're, we're still at an impasse we were wondering if we could get certain a certain part of the testimony of the officer reread as a general well i would say as a general rule but this is not an absolute as a general rule in my experience um, you don't reread first of all there, there's not there's not a continuous transcript of the trial. It's not that easy to do. You have to bring the court reporter in, and they've got to read their notes. Um, I, I had juries that would say things like, "Well, we'd like to hear the entire testimony of so and so written back, read back," and and it's just not practical to do. I think what the judge did then was he asked the jury a question, saying, "What exactly is it that you're you're trying to hear? Is there something? Do you want to hear her testimony? Do you want to hear the cross examination? What exactly are you looking for?" And I don't think they heard back yet. The jury um, asked to have lunch sent in, so. They are apparently continuing their deliberations. Who knows what's going to happen, whether they're going to be able to reach a verdict or whether they're going to come back deadlocked. Like I say, if they tell the judge again that they have been unable to reach a verdict in that particular case, I think he's probably going to have no choice but to declare a mistrial. And then we see where we go. In any event, we will continue to monitor that. I am on record as telling what I thought about this prosecution, but 12 jurors may see it differently. We will continue to keep you updated. All right. We start off today's show like we start off every show with three big things. All right. And I think everybody knows by now 
after after the Parkland shooting two weeks ago, there's all sorts of people looking for all sorts of different solutions. And as has been the case in other mass shooting situations, the firearm that was used in the Parkland shooting was an AR-15. Now, AR, interestingly enough, that does not stand for assault rifle. That's not what AR means. AR, absolutely, it refers to the company that developed this particular type of firearm, which is Armalite rifle. So that's what AR means. People say, that it, it's an AR-15. The Armalite rifle is a civilian version of the, the military M16. Um, AR-15s are not fully automatic. They, they're not machine guns that you can push a button and automatically they will fire fully automatic. You have to pull the trigger every time you want to fire a shot. AR-15s, like many firearms, do come with um, magazines that contain a large number of bullets. So essentially, you can fire as quickly as you pull the trigger. But that's true of a lot of firearms. Um, can I see a hand out there, hands up, of everybody, for example, who owns you know semi-automatic pistols? Um, you put a magazine into the pistol, and as quickly as you can pull the trigger, uh, you can fire shots. So in that regard, the AR-15... Uh, shares a lot with a number of other different types of firearms. Why do people like the AR-15s? Well, it's because they're lightweight, they're easy to handle, and they're easy to shoot. The estimates are that there are about 8 million AR-15s currently in private hands. I mean, that that's the number, about 8 million. So for people who say we need to get AR-15s out of society, we need to ban these types of firearms, the question then becomes, all right, well, what does that mean? What does banning the AR-15 mean? Does it mean you're going to stop um, uh, future sales of it? Does it mean you're going to stop resales of it? Does it mean that you're going to go door to door and try to confiscate the 8 million firearms that are out there. And while the AR-15 has been the firearm of choice in some of the most notable school shootings, I mean, still, that's that's a handful of incidents out of 8 million people that own the firearm. Now, I bring this up because Dick's Sporting Goods, which is one of the nation's largest sports retailers, uh, announced this morning that they were going to be ending sales of all assault-style rifles in their stores. They also said that they would no longer sell high-capacity magazines. All right, which is is fine. So they say, okay, we're not going to carry this particular firearm. That, of course, it, it's fine for Dick's to do that. They have the right to sell what they want to sell, but that doesn't make any difference because as long as you can buy that firearm, if somebody says, I want to buy the firearm, all right, well, if they're not going to go to Dick's, they're going to go somewhere else and buy the gun. The underlying question is whether or not the fact that this firearm, which is lightweight, accurate, and easy to fire, and can shoot bullets as fast as someone can pull the trigger, like a number of other firearms, the question becomes, should it be banned? And if so, what does that mean? Um, Should people who now own them, again, let's assume this number is correct, 8 million, 
the overwhelming majority, 7.9999 million people, um, should they be required to turn in their firearms? Is that practical? Would that make the world safer if we banned this particular gun? And by banned, I mean the private ownership. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, that's really the fundamental question. And when I hear these people talking about, oh, let's ban this, let's not allow people to own it, my under my question becomes, all right, what about the people who own it now? Should the government not allow possession of that firearm, and should people be able be required to turn in their guns if they currently own them? 414-799-1620. Is it time to ban this particular firearm and all like it? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1217. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Harley-Davidson has its plan set for the 115th anniversary celebration here in Milwaukee this summer. Check out all the info by texting the word Harley to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. Dick's Sporting Goods announcing this morning they are no longer going to sell AR-15 rifles. That AR, as I said earlier, doesn't mean assault rifle. It's... um. It's named after the the original manufacturer of the guns. Uh, that that's all well and good, as Casey in Watertown points out in a text to me. Says you know, Dix is probably just guaranteed a run on AR-15s. Here's my question: Should we ban them? And and what exactly does that mean? There's eight million of these things out in private ownership right now. Are we going to have the government go door to door and confiscate them or demand people turn in their guns? Keep in mind, even though this is the firearm of choice in the handful of, you know, mass shootings we have had, the reality is 7.999999 million of those 8 million are responsibly used by gun owners. 4147991620. Let's start with Mike in West Bend. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Long-time listener, many-time caller. Love the show. <laughs> Love the you. topic. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, I'm, I'm a confirmed libertarian. Um, I own guns. I know many people that own guns. I think this topic is wonderful uh, for discussion. I applaud Dick's efforts in, in doing the free market thing. I, I, I don't like the government ban idea, but I like uh, independent operators and stores to decide whether they would like to do this or not. Let's face it, when you buy a gun, all of your information is traceable back to the purchase place. If I was Dick Sporting Goods or Walmart or anything, I would not want a gun that was purchased at my store mm-hmm. traced back to my store. Mm-hmm. That was caused in a or that was caused for a, a major um, shooting or violent uh, outburst. But, but I guess how how my my question that would be, Mike, would that mean that you would get out of the gun business? Like for example, um, you I, I I own a I own a handgun. I own a pistol. Uh, it's got a magazine. It is capable of. I, I think the magazine. Uh, it's the, you could put eight bullets in. You could have one in the chamber. I think I could fire nine shots without reloading. Off the top of my head, I, right. I would imagine. Yeah. So I guess the question becomes now if. So the next time around, somebody uses a handgun and comes in with three or four magazines and fires all these shots off quickly. Does that mean that you know you're not going to carry the handguns? At, at what point in time? Right. Do yeah, you stop I, it? I know what you're saying. That's a difficult line to cross. Um, I think it's because it's glamorous right now to use the AR. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the gun of choice. I 
you know, I, I'm happy to see them off the streets. I don't use that gun for any hunting purposes. I know people that do, and they, they claim that they're fun to shoot and things like that. And, and they're, right. like they said, they're accurate. And they're easy to, yeah, they're lightweight. Yep. No, no, thanks yep. for calling, Mike. I mean, I get, look, th- this is why it becomes so difficult. And I, I understand that there is this sort of knee-jerk reaction out there that says, okay, ban this particular type of firearm. And by the way, I'm not this guy that's against reasonable, you know, gun restrictions. I, you know, after the Las Vegas shooting, this whole bump stock thing, I, I, I don't understand why if it's illegal to have as a general rule that you can't own a machine gun unless you register it, why for $35 you should be able to buy something that essentially turns your legal firearm into an unregistered machine gun. So, I mean, I, I don't have problems with certain regulations, but at the same time, I, I'm sitting here thinking, all right, if there's 8 million of these things on the street, you know, what what do we really accomplish if you try to ban them? And then how do you do it? I mean, really, are we going to go door to door and try to confiscate these type of firearms? And what about the people that don't turn them in? Are we going to try to prosecute them? And what about the criminals that still have these guns? How are we going to deal with that? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Vincent on the northwest side. Hello, Vincent. Uh, good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? When they banned, uh, uh, when they stopped selling assault weapons, the fact is, I'm sure that individuals in this country had those weapons as well, and we didn't. Uh, we didn't send out the FBI and everybody else to go hunt them down and get those guns out of people's hands. Mm-hmm. The fact is, they just were not sold anymore. And so, when you sell, when you, when you, if you stop selling guns like the AR-15, I think the same people that that own those guns are going to still own those guns. They can put them up and put little trophies on them or whatever they want to do, or put them in their gun cases, and that's fine. But the fact is, if you stop selling them at this point in time, those guns and those high-powered magazines, I think that that's that's a step forward in trying to uh, stop this mayhem that would happen. But yeah, but but we we banned assault weapons. We stopped selling. We we told stores they couldn't sell them anymore. So individuals who have them, that they they can they can take them and shoot them on their property, whatever they want to do. I'm sure they have them. But the fact is, those those guns aren't sold anymore. So you would say you would grant anybody that is a current owner of an AR-15, for example, could keep it. You and they would be grandfathered in. Yes. Your idea would be just don't sell them in the future. Don't sell them in the future. All right. Here's my question to you. Let's say that somebody proposed that let because Vincent, you and I live in the real world. <laughs> okay. So somebody proposed that legislation. So it's got to get debated. And let's say, for the sake of argument, there's enough votes for that. How many people do you think? Over the six months or the nine months it would take to have that debate, would run out and buy AR-15s before they were made illegal. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will run yeah. out and do it. I'm sure a lot of people ran out and bought assault weapons when, when back in the '80s when we decided to get rid of those. I'm sure a lot of folks said, "Well, I'm going to get mine, you know, get my machine gun or get whatever I want to get at that particular time." But the point is, is once you be, once you begin down the road of saying, "Listen, we some common sense." Legislation that says, "Hey, we need to stop this, 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 this uh, mm-hmm. you know, selling these particular weapons." I think we, we're at a we at a good point. So I'm sure, yeah, a, a lot of people will run out and buy them. But the fact is, is that at some point we've got to stop stop this madness. Mm-hmm. And so the, the only way I can see it is get rid of those guns like the AR-50. And, and those what about what? Let me ask you the same question I asked the previous caller. What about? All the millions and millions of people who own the, the semi-automatic pistols, not the revolvers, but the things that have magazines, that have the eight or nine bullets in them, again, capable of firing as quickly as you can pull the trigger, 
would you outlaw those as well? No, I wouldn't outlaw those outlaw those folks. But I think the problem is is that you you have a you have a magazine that can shoot over t- you can, mm-hmm. they can shoot multiple bullets. I think I think that that the the fact is that you should outlaw those. I think I applaud Dix for saying, hey, they're not going to sell those high power magazines anymore. Right. And and I, I think the fact is we need to start somewhere. And and so. Uh, 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 I, I think it's a good point. Okay, no, thanks for call. I appreciate it. And again, I say I want people to think about this because th- this is a difficult issue to try to figure out what you're going to do in the real world. Guns, I mean, okay, it's one thing if you could say, all right, tomorrow I'm going to wave my magic wand and all firearms that are in private ownership, that they're going to disappear or, or whatever. Let's forget about the Second Amendment. Let's just say you could make them disappear. But but we don't have a magic wand to do that. So the question becomes, how do you practically do it? And, I mean, is there... Is there a difference? You take away the AR-15, for example, with its high, ca- with its you know the large magazines. But then, all right, what about the the pistols? Well, what about the people that again have these the magazines that can fire eight or nine or, or even larger? Mine, mine, it's it's like eight or nine. You can buy larger ones. But then the person shows up at the school with four or five or six magazines, and you're essentially you know you drop one out, you start firing again. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. We're going to continue this for one more segment. Because, I mean, this is the issue of the day. It's the issue of the year. What is reasonable gun control? Stick around. 1229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Craig in Lowell. Craig, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. I love the way you started off your show by, you know what, people need an education. What is an automatic, semi-automatic, pump, single-action and then, you know what, we need to talk about calibers, too, you know, the different calibers. But all guns, regardless of type or caliber, are deadly. Right. You know, uh, are we willing to give up one life or 17 lives? Uh, so it, it goes to a whole lot of different things. You know, what was the Second Amendment about? It was protecting citizens against a tyr- tyrannical government. Yep. Well, I, guess, but, I mean, but, uh, but at the same time, it comes down to enforcement. I, if, if I'm not wrong, I think uh, that Wayne Lapierre said something about uh, you know the background checks that people are being caught trying to cheat, and they're not being pr- uh, prosecuted. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I mean, thanks to Carl Craig. I mean, here's the thing. Clearly, if you look at what happened in Parkland with this shooter, th- there was a huge breakdown in the, the the criminal justice system. I mean, Broward County, you, you go out to this guy's house, you know, 20, 30 times, however many they had over the, the years. I mean, it's one situation after another where there were all the red flags that were out there and nobody did anything. The FBI screwing up after people, you know, put out these verifiable tips and they don't go out and investigate. So, I mean, here you have a situation where you had somebody who clearly... Um, had shown all the signs and symptoms of being somebody who should not have a firearm, and yet he did have a, a firearm. So, I mean, I, this, to me, the, the Parkland situation isn't the gun. To me, this is why there was this guy on the street. But at the same time, I understand the thinking is, well, if there wasn't the easy access to the gun, he wouldn't be in a position to do this. Okay, fine, but let us then play that out. If he couldn't get the AR-15, 
All right. And I think the reason some of these shooters use this particular firearm is there's the copycat effect. All right. So if you couldn't get this AR-15. Okay, so what what does he do next? Well, maybe he goes out and he buys a handgun like many people have with the extended clips and with the extended magazines and things like that. And and he has just as much carnage and he causes that. So, I mean, where do we draw the line and how do you get guns out of people's hands? Let's talk to uh, let's see. We've got Rodney in Hartford. Rodney, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. How's it going, Jeff? Love your show. Thank you, sir. I appreciate my, you listening. I'm an avid sportsman and gun owner. Uh, my, I have two things on it. First thing is, with you saying there's 8 million AR-15 model brand guns out there, how do they think, as you said, that they would take those away from people? Yeah. My concern yeah. is you, you, you're going to create a civil war in this United States, for one. By going into telling people they have to give something up, and they're not everybody's going to be willing to just give it up, right? Or or register the guns. And what do you do with the right. people who don't register it? Are we going to then start criminalize? Are we going to start like, charging those people with crimes? I mean, where are you going to get the prosecutors for that? And, and 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 not only that, Jeff. Some of these, and I'm pretty familiar with this stuff. Some of these AR-15 platform guns are created. They're not even, they never were registered. There's, there's companies out there that build these things and you don't have to register them because they're created through a, you know, different machines, CNC machines and everything else. They've, they've made all kinds of different things. There's so, 22 calibers. Right. You know, that you can buy ma- multiple magazines. I can buy a 100 round magazine for my 22. I can, you know, you can, a 9 millimeter platform gun, you can build c- different conversions for those that you can have multiple 30 to 50 to 100 round clips. I right. Mean, and where does it stop is, is, is my thing, and that's the concern I have is when is it going to stop? Because at some point you're going to have a civil war because nobody's going to want to just give it up. Well, right. So I, I, I try to play this out. So, okay, let's, let's, let's take this Nicholas Cruz, who was clearly a psychopath, who had, had shown all these indications that, I mean, he was going to do something like this. So like I said a minute ago, Rodney, let's assume he can't get the AR-15. All right, so next – What's he going to do? Does that mean he's not going to go shoot up the school? No, it means he's going to go to, uh, again, the, the Smith & Wesson 9mm pistol and walk in there with four magazines and start firing all the shots. So then do we say, well, we're going to ban this particular type of miss- uh, type of pistol? I mean, where do you draw the line, I guess? Well, that's correct. There is no line. at, at, at the, I mean, we've created this problem long, long ago. Right. I mean, obviously, when the Second Amendment was you know, produced, and then we just kept evolving from there. And now there's, it's, it's too hard in America to turn back now at this point. I'm not all for it. I think it's wrong what happened there, but I just think that they need to think it through when they, instead of, you know, these background checks, like I said, I'm not against them. If you have some kind of mental, you know, state or something, or you've been some kind of mental, and I don't know if that stuff's protected by the HEPA laws or what, I don't know. But more of this stuff needs to be brought out to people's attention before they buy these guns. Well, right. I mean, thanks for calling. And I, I will tell you, I mean, when, when it comes to – if you want to talk about, you know, gun control measures, I, I've always seen t- – to me, it's not gun control. It's crime control. I mean, if you – and again, the, the, what happened in Parkland was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. But, I mean, I, I look at all the firearm violence that goes on on a daily basis – in our urban areas. I mean, just just take Milwaukee. You do what I do for a living. You know, every night about 9 o'clock at night, I sit down with the computer. I start looking, okay, trying to put together the talk show for the next day. And inevitably, 
there's going to be a story about, you know, so-and-so shot this evening. Or you look, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, how many people were shot overnight? I mean, we do have an epidemic of gun violence in this country. But does that mean that it's the guns? Or, you know, is it a situation where you have mentally ill people who showed all the signals who shouldn't have the guns, or in most cases, criminals who aren't legally allowed to possess firearms anyways, who still have the guns and are out on the streets committing the crimes, which is why I've always looked at it as crime control. And again, I'm with you, Rodney. There's certain, I, I think you can have reasonable restrictions. I know you might, you know, there might be people out there that disagree with me, but I mean, I, I the, again, the bump stock, that's a classic example of you're not legally unless you register it, allowed to own a machine gun. So why should you be able to buy something for $35, which takes a legal firearm and turns it into an illegal firearm? All right, I I have no problems with banning that. Enhanced background checks, I think that stuff like that might be reasonable. All those different things are out there. But let's face it, right now, especially given all the firearms that are in private hands, All this stuff is just going to be on the periphery. The answer to this is, again, number one, to daily gun violence. It's looking at the laws, taking people who commit crimes with guns off the street and keeping them on the street. That's why it didn't get a lot of attention. I mentioned it yesterday or Monday. Legislation that went through the Wisconsin State Senate and Assembly and is now sitting on the governor's desk, which would provide mandatory four-year prison terms for people who felons who, again, are caught illegally in the possession of firearms if the felony was in the last four years or three misdemeanors. So mandatory time because judges aren't doing their jobs. The whole thing is very frustrating to me. But again, I listen to this gun control debate and I see all the illustrations. And my question is, okay, fine. You've got the kids that want to walk out and say, we want these gun control restrictions and we want to ban the AR-15s. And then nobody asks that follow up. Okay, what are you going to do with the eight million that are in private hands? And then how are you going to handle the next firearm of choice when somebody uses that? Just saying. It's twelve forty-four. When we come back, uh, big thing number two: impeaching the president. Is that a winning strategy? Stick around. It's twelve forty-eight. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Tell you what, Drew, who's producing the show today and always, let me surprise you. Let's do that giveaway right now. We've got a pair. <laughs> he's, he's like, Jeff, I see you for two hours before the show. Why don't you tell me what you are thinking? Well, that's because I just got inside. Insight 2018, March 28th, the Country Springs Hotel. Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. We have an incredibly powerful lineup. Governor Scott Walker. Um, the conservative candidate for the state Supreme Court is going to be there. Uh, Attorney General Brad Schimmel. We plan on having the candidates for the uh, Republican nomination for the uh, Tammy Baldwin seat. It's going to be exciting. March 28th and some other guests that we're working on. So the lineup continues to evolve. Tickets are on sale now. If you go to WTMJ.com, you'll see Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. It's your chance to see all these newsmakers up close and personal it's a fun evening and then what we do is we tape the show and we rebroadcast it we run it for broadcast to uh, this year it's going to be both on thursday and friday tickets went on sale two days ago and we
We've had a great response so far. Um, let's give a pair of tickets to Insight 2018 to caller number 12, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Insight 2018 presented by my friends at Annex Wealth Management. Caller number 12, you win a pair of tickets, 414-799-1620. One of the reasons that I, I, I'm not, I'm, I am not pandering when I say this. It, it's true. Um, I I just love the feedback on, on these difficult issues, and I, I try to do a a radio talk show which makes people think. Because that I mean th- these issues, uh, you know, make make me think. And I'm just looking at some of the texts. I mean, here's one of our texts. I want to know why anyone needs a gun like an AR-15. If someone can answer that with a legitimate answer, that would be great. I don't want to hear it because of my right or for protection. The only people that need these guns are military and police, not civilians. Okay, well, I guess my question is, all right, so if, if you could figure out how to ban that firearm and how to confiscate all the firearms, what does happen next when the next school shooting involves uh, a handgun? Um, let's see. Jeff, I think if it's banned, these people will find a way. What's stopping them from doing something with a pressure cooker? They have to look at mental health, not the gun. Uh, Justin says, I think that reducing the ongoing supply of combined high power and high shot capacity weapons like the actions by Dix will help reduce the risk that a deranged person will be able to inflict as much harm before they can be stopped. Okay, maybe, maybe. Um, My guess is when places like Dix say, "Okay, we're not going to carry this type of weapon all that does is cause buyers to then migrate to other places that do. And I think my guess is that's what's going to happen. My guess is you're going to see a spike in sales as people say, well, maybe this type of firearm is, in fact, going to be banned. Um, don't know. Okay, we have our winner for a pair of tickets to Insight 2018. All right, if you didn't win the pair of tickets today, okay, don't be a cheapskate. Go to WTMJ.com, click on the link, come join me, um, Insight 2015. And yes, 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 yes. People keep asking me, is your wife going to be there? Yes, she is going to be there. She said she wouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> so all her friends will come as well, which means you better hurry and buy tickets because she knows absolutely everybody. Um, when we come back, big story number two, impeachment of the president. Is that really a winning strategy? 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve fifty-five, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. There's a new way to listen to WTMJ on the FM dial. Breaking news, traffic reports, weather updates, and your favorite Wisconsin sports teams always on AM at 620 and now on FM 103.3 in your car, your home, with Alexa or from the stands. You can now listen to us on AM and FM. That's AM at 620, the biggest stick in the state, state and FM 103.3. All right, big story number two. Interestingly enough, um, yesterday, President Trump pretty much confirmed that he's going to be running for re-election. This really isn't a surprise. He started, he, he filed his, his papers to allow him to raise money the day after his inauguration. But he's now announced who his campaign manager is going to be. And he says, I, I'm, I'm in. It's not unusual for a sitting president to run um, for re-election. Typically, they wait to make the formal announcement, though, until after the midterm elections. But President Trump says, hey, I'm, I'm in with this. Now, yesterday, I argued 
that people who automatically think, oh, there's no way that he can ever get reelected, they're, they're badly missing the point. Because the truth of the matter is, if you look at his poll numbers, and I don't roll your eyes and say, well, we don't believe in polls. and But if you look at his poll numbers, and I do think, and we saw this in the 2016 election, the the support for President Trump is undercaptured in polls. I think that that's for whatever reasons, whether the pollsters aren't able to go out and identify the Trump supporters or whether people lie to the pollsters or whatever, Trump's actual support is better than the polls show. Even having said that, though, the polls, the the Trump support numbers, the approval numbers, um, low 40s which you might think, oh, that means he could never get reelected. Well, all right, th- that's that's where Ronald Reagan was at this point in time in his campaign, in his first the first year of his first term. That's where Clinton was, essentially. That's where Obama was, essentially. Um, you know, the exception was George W. Bush, but 9-11 happened, and the country had come together, and he had really high a- approval ratings. But at this, at this time in the presidency... Um, where President Trump is, is where all these other presidents were who went on to essentially coast to re-election. Now, I understand, and here you have a situation where you have President Trump who's had everything but the kitchen sink thrown at him. You've had this war between him and the media. As I always say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't really out to get you. And still, you know, Trump is where other presidents were. So I, I'm not predicting that he's going to win. Who knows what's going to happen over the next three years? Will the economy continue to do, you know, go gangbusters like it is? You know, are we going to get into a shooting war somewhere? These are all variables that unless you've got a crystal ball that works, you don't know. But the idea that Trump is necessarily vulnerable, I don't buy. So into this jumps Maxine Waters, who's the crazy congresswoman from California. She is saying, that for the midterm elections that are coming up, people should get ready for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, She's saying, look, this is an issue, and this is something if we mobilize people and go out and say, hey, you elect Democrats in November of 2018 that are committed to wanting to impeach the president, that this will be a winning strategy. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you are a Republican, I think the best thing the Democrats could do would be to run on a we're going to impeach the president strategy. I think except among the most hardcore of the hardcore, this strategy is a loser. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Impeach the president. Would you vote for somebody who made that the center point of their campaign? We're going to discuss after the news. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 1259. This is Jeff Wagner. As Eric said, 110, this is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Uh, no surprise, um, if you're just tuning in, this is, of course, the the prosecution, a prosecution that, candidly, I cannot believe the district attorney undertook in the first place. As I said weeks ago, 
I would be stunned if you could convince 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the burden the prosecution has, of proving that this particular police officer was guilty of a crime. Now, I, I don't know if there's going to be a civil, there will inevitably be a civil lawsuit. And, uh, you know, I don't have any comment as to whether or not, you know, they're going to be able to sustain a lesser burden of proof. But when you bring a charge like this, it is the burden of the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, in this case, a police officer who was in a struggle for her life was guilty of, you know, aggravated battery um resulting in you know serious bodily harm in connection with the, the shooting of this guy who was clearly and totally resisting arrest and again i i don't know whether the officer followed complete and total police protocol or or not but i knew based on what i saw that i didn't think there was any way that you could convince 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt that they had committed a crime and that is apparently what has happened here in criminal cases what happens is it is the burden of the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the individual is guilty all 12 people have to agree that the state has reached has achieved that burden interestingly enough also, if there's going to be an acquittal, all 12 have to agree that the state has failed in its burden. In this particular case, the jury could not reach a verdict. After two weeks of trial, getting the case on Monday, they sent a note to the judge yesterday afternoon saying, we're, we're deadlocked. We cannot reach a verdict. The judge gave what is known as the Allen charge, which essentially says, go back. Resume your deliberations. Keep an open mind. Try to resolve this particular case. Um, gave that instruction. They came back today. They deliberated for the better part of the morning. They had lunch brought in, and they have apparently now announced that they are just deadlocked. They cannot reach a verdict. So as a result, the judge has no choice but to declare a mistrial and send the, the jury home. This means that the district attorney's office is now going to have to decide whether to retry the case, whether to take tax dollars of Milwaukee County taxpayers and bring this case back for another two-week trial, whether the DA wants to put this particular officer through this again. So having failed to successfully prosecute this case in the first place, now the DA is going to have to decide. Now, by the way, I don't know what the breakdown was. I don't know if you had 10 jurors that thought they should convict or 10 jurors that thought they should acquit. And again, it has to be unanimous one way or the other. I know they could not get a verdict. I will tell you this. Somebody was asking me this this morning. Hung juries are surprisingly rare. I think back in all the different federal prosecutions that I had over the years. And I probably, I certainly tried more than 100 cases. To, you know, how many more, I, I don't know. Lost track after a while. I never had a hung jury. I had a jury in one or two cases, one in particular that I remember, that was unable to reach a verdict on one of the counts, you know, one of the different charges. But I never had an entire jury, to my recollection, you know, unable to reach a, a verdict on at least some of the counts, which I think is candidly, it shows 
how hard jurors work and how they, you know, they try to reach agreements. In this case, the jury was a- unable to do that. So obviously there were some people who wanted to convict. There were some people who wanted to acquit. Um, there was also a choice of what is known as a lesser included verdict that was out there. And the jurors in this case, apparently they, they could, they would have a degree on that unanimously and, and they couldn't. So clearly there was a split. Now the ball goes back to the district attorney's office to decide whether or not to retry this case. All right. Want to open up the phone lines 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't candidly understand why the DA brought this case in the first place. Like I say, I I think I understand that there will be a civil lawsuit, and I take no position on whether or not the victim in this case, the guy who was clearly resisting arrest and not getting shot, whether he's entitled to recover or or not. That's a whole different ball of wax. I just never saw, I saw this as a case, and I said that when we talked about the beginning, that absolutely screamed reasonable doubt. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The DA's office could, if it chose, recharge this case. I believe that under the circumstances, that would be an incredible waste of resources. And the best way I could describe that would be throwing good money and good time after bad. And maybe the DA's office would be a lot better off spending that time and resources going after, I don't know, the carjackers and the rapists and the car thieves and all the other real criminals that are out there on the streets instead of this brown deer police officer. And again, this I understand this isn't the end of the matter. There's going to be a civil lawsuit. The victim's going to sue. That That's fine. That's fine. Let that play out. But from a criminal justice perspective, I think it's time to let this go. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 116. This is Jeff Wagner. 119, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're just tuning in, uh, following a two-week trial and uh, the better part of a couple days of deliberations, the jury in the prosecution of Brown Deer Officer Devon Kramer has deadlocked, They, which means there will be a mistrial. She is the officer who found herself back in 2016 in a life-or-death struggle, at least what she describes as a life-or-death struggle, with a guy that outweighed her by probably a couple hundred pounds who was, had caused an altercation on a Milwaukee County bus, uh, the DA's office. And this is the second time that they've recently brought prosecutions against police officers that they have not been able to secure a conviction in. The DA's office had charged her with aggravated battery um, uh, for this shooting. Um, jury says they are unable to reach a verdict. That is not a surprise to me, as I said at the start of this trial. I, I just I didn't see this is a case that to me screamed reasonable doubt. Um, it, it's not a situation where if you look at it, all, all right, is it possible that somebody might say, well, when she fired this shot, when she was in the struggle, was she right or wrong? But that's not what the standard is. The standard is, can you agree beyond a reasonable doubt that this was not a legitimate act of self-defense given the situation? And I will just tell you, my assessment of it was there was no way you were going to be able to convince 12 people unanimously 
that what this officer did was a felony, and that is apparently what has happened. Now the question becomes, does the DA's office throw good money and resources after bad in trying to retry this woman? My answer would be, I sure hope not. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, if this person is struggling and struggling, and they're like in maybe a life and death situation or maybe not quite that far, but you keep struggling, what are they supposed to do? Let the guy go? Well, right. In, you know, in, it, in this it, particular... It, I don't think anyone's going to uh, convict them uh, unanimously for 12 people. Well, right. I mean, nine. and again, I, I don't know how the jury was split on this, and I, I didn't sit in the trial day after day, and I didn't hear every detail of, you know, there, there were there were competing experts. There were some people, there was the prosecution had an expert that said, okay, this wasn't reasonable for a law enforcement officer to do it, and the defense had their expert. All I'm saying is this is a particular case that just, again, screamed that reasonable doubt, and you wonder what the DA's office was thinking, I wonder if there was a political element to this. But now that they've done it once, to do it again... I think it's political. Yeah, you think political? I think, right, again, to try to, because, I mean, this was one of these, oh, here you have another shooting of this unarmed black male and all this type of stuff. All right, so the DA's office, now at least... It gets to say, all right, well, we, we tried. Don't be upset with us. We tried. The jury wouldn't convict. So it gives John Chisholm political cover if that was part of the motivation. Now, Chisholm would get very angry and say, we don't make these decisions based on politics. Yeah, right. Um, but all right, fine. Regardless, you made the effort once. It appears you were unable to secure a conviction to convince a jury of 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt that this officer committed a crime. I think at this point in time, it's time to say, let's close the books on this and let's let's let everybody go back to work. Tony, um, on the east side. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Tony. Okay, lost Tony. Um, number of texts that are coming in. Uh, one here. Your DA's office sucks. <laughs> well, I it's... Now, there there are some interesting choices that end up getting made. In any event, this should not be a surprise to anyone that the result was as it was. Um, candidly, DA's office tried to convict, wasn't able to convince 12 people that a crime had been committed. To retry this woman would, in my opinion, be an absolute miscarriage of justice. Like I say, the victim in this particular case, well, now, you know, he, he's not without, you know, his ability to, again, file the civil lawsuit against the Brown Deer Police Department and the officer, and there's a different standard of proof, and maybe he'll be able to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that his rights were violated or whatever. But this, to me, was never a case about guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what you have to prove when you bring a criminal case. And the DA's office has failed. It's 124. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 126. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Yeah, no necessary surprises. That if you would say, what, Jeff, what do you mean when you say that the... Um, what do you mean when you say that there was a political element to this? Of course, the police officer in this Brown Deer shooting case was white. The man who was shot was black. At various times during the proceedings, uh, the Milwaukee Black Panthers appeared at some of the court proceedings. Uh, Ms. Kramer's father, who's a retired Milwaukee police officer, um, had told possible supporters that he believed the Black Panthers were targeting his daughter to try to politicize the case as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. There was this whole political overlay to this. 
my perspective always was based on, again, I'd sit through the courtroom day after day, but what I sensed, and I have a pretty good nose for this type of stuff, having charged cases for a, a long a number of years, I just didn't see this case being one that, again, the prosecution was going to be able to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and they gave it their best effort. Why they decided to give it their best effort is kind of beyond me, but they did. And they ended up failing in that regard. And so now I think it's just really time to, I think, decide to let everybody get on with their lives. A number of people are asking questions about, you know, this, including some people are saying, you know, what goes on in, in a jury room? Well, uh, if you've ever been on a jury, you, you know that it, it, it varies from jury to jury. But, yeah, what, what essentially happens is you get people and they sit down to – they sit down in the room and they discuss the evidence and they debate these points. And, you know, people, reasonable people can disagree on these type of things. But uh, the, the bottom line is, I think had there been a guilty verdict returned in this case, it would have had an incredibly chilling impact on law enforcement moving forward. Look, there's no police officer in the world that wakes up on a given day and says, gee, today's the day that I hope I can get involved in a life or death struggle with somebody who outweighs me by about 150 or 200 pounds. Um, That's just not the way people go into these types of things. Officers are in a very, very stressful situation, and you try to make what you think is a routine arrest, somebody acting up on a bus. You ask the guy to leave the bus. Next thing you know, you're rolling around on the ground with somebody who outweighs you by 200 pounds, and you're in this this struggle. And you can say, okay, well, an officer, maybe maybe she overreacted when she did this. Maybe it wasn't objectively justified. All right, that's great. Wait till you find yourself in that particular situation. And again, there's going to be a civil lawsuit. I don't have any opinion as to how that civil lawsuit should, in fact, turn out. But when it comes to the idea of whether this officer committed a felony, I don't think the DA had the goods. I am surprised and a little bit disappointed that they brought the charges in the first place. Um, The outcome, I think, was, in fact, predictable which is an inability to secure a conviction. And now the question is, what does John Chisholm do from here? Hopefully he will just move on and take his resources. And I don't know, he, you know, you had all the resources put on the John Doe investigation. That went nowhere. You've now lost another case involving police misconduct. Maybe if he just concentrated on doing what we want the DA to do, which is going after the real criminals, the office would be more successful. It's 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, The Bucks. Busy week continues tonight in the Motor City. They're battling the Pistons at the brand new Little Caesars Arena. Ted Davis will be courtside with our coverage. It starts at 540 here on WTMJ. Tough loss last night. I, I tuned into the beginning of the game and... If it was possible to get off to a worse start, it was like 23 to 5 or something. Um, but they, they fought back and had a chance to really pull it out and didn't. Second uh, tough loss in a row. They're playing Detroit tonight. Uh, Bucks season, yeah, it's, it's kind of one that can go sort of either way. What are they? It's sixth place, I think, in the playoffs right now. So win a couple games and maybe they can get that home court advantage. All right. Let us completely switch gears from some of the things that we have been talking about um, and, and deal with something that is a concern to each and every one of us. 
Now, as I said before the break, there really are in Wisconsin, you know, two seasons. The joke used to be winter and road construction. And, and that, I guess, is still true to an extent, except it seems that road construction now is one permanent season. There really, if you want to look at two seasons, what there really are around here, the two seasons are winter and pothole season. Because it seems that every time we have the thaw that inevitably happens, boom, you have potholes that spring up. And there are potholes, and then there are potholes. Sometimes you have the potholes, which cause, well, I don't know, just a little bit of a bump. Then you have the potholes, which cause $500 worth of of damage to your vehicle. And as I have been, and I, I end up, I end up driving around a lot, been driving around a lot over the last, you know, month or two as we've gone through the spring thaw, the the thaw and the freeze cycles and things like that. And I, I understand that part of this is just natural, but I have to tell you, I, I think this year the outbreak of potholes has been as bad as any year that I have ever seen. Um, part of it is maybe because of delayed road repair. Part of it might be because of cutbacks in, I don't know, the infrastructure or the people that go out and fill them. Part of it, I think, is because, you know, we have patches instead of real repairs a lot of times, and those patches don't don't really work. You know, you have the pothole, you go out, and you put some stuff in, and then you have the free thaw cycle, and the patch just ends up popping out, and you've got the same problem, maybe worse. But but it is, I think, this overriding issue that goes on. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Is this one of the worst seasons for potholes ever? How are you dealing with this? Are you dealing with it? Because I will tell you, the roads I travel to get between where I live and where I work and then where I go to shop and stuff, I will tell you, it is like a minefield sometimes, particularly some bad areas that you end up trying to figure out, hey, I can't even stay in this lane anymore because otherwise I know my vehicle is going to be in the repair shop. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Pothole Patrol. How bad have they been this year? I think so far it has been an epic problem, and I think it is getting worse, not better. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back to discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 139. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 143. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Bob Euchre is back on your radio. The Cactus League is underway, and you can check out the crew's entire spring training schedule broadcast in the Brewer section of WTMJ.com or by texting the word Brewers to 414-799-1620. Opening day is Thursday, March 29th. That's the day after our Insight 2018 event at the Country Springs Hotel. The Brewers open on the road in San Diego. They come back the next Monday is their home opener, and we're looking forward to that as uh, as that well as well. A lot of uh, exciting times here. It's good to have baseball back on the radio. It just means that summer is ever that much closer, and that is always an extremely good thing. No question about um, that. 
Let's see, Jeff and Fox Point text. Maybe it's because I was driving more than, but I think the summer fall of 2012 was the worst for potholes. The Jackson Juno area where I live had potholes galore. I felt like I was driving the mind bridge from Escape from New York when driving to work. No, there's no question about that. Um, hmm. Now here, Joe in South Milwaukee says, I just spent the weekend in South Bend, Indiana. We have nothing to complain about in comparison to the roads there. We do much better. So, all right, we've got that going for us. Hey, we're better than South Bend. Hey, we've, we've got that rolling. Huh, I don't know. All right, let's switch gears. Um, last week, I was on vacation, um, went to Key West. And as I said earlier this week, if you ever get a chance to spend some time in Key West, my advice is do it. Just just a tremendous vacation, maybe the best vacation I've ever had. Um, to get to Key West, we, we flew. And actually, we flew Delta. Delta's in the middle of a ongoing dispute because they canceled some deal they had with the NRA. But our, our flights were fine. Flew Delta from Milwaukee to Atlanta, changed planes in Atlanta, flew into Key West, and then back again. So no problem. Flights were on time, and to the extent there was any delays, it was not Delta's fault or anything like that. But I, I did, in, in all the flights we took, they were, they were, as they almost always are nowadays, completely full flights, all right? And one of the things that I that they say is they beg, beg, beg people to check their bags because the overhead space is at a premium and it and it fills up. Now, when I travel, um, if I'm carrying, I, I've gotten to the point where I check the bags. I, I just do that as a matter of course, especially if I've got to change planes. I don't want to have to lug them around. I always have a little carry-on bag that's got my computer and stuff in it, but it fits under the seat of the under the seat of the plane, so it's not that big a deal. I cannot tell you, as I was on these various flights, I'm looking at the people getting on the flights. And I swear to God, it's like they're moving out of their houses. I'm looking at some of this luggage that, that they're bringing on the plane. And, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that some of this stuff, even if you tried to check it, it looks like it might weigh more than 50 pounds. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not that much. I mean, I see these people trying to wheel down and navigate the aisles with these enormous type of bags that then they decide that they're going to try to cram into the overhead bins. And sometimes it fits, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it fills up, sometimes it doesn't. But inevitably what happens is the overhead bins fill up with all this stuff. And then what ends up happening is they have to go by and the people who are getting on at the end, there's no room in the overhead bins for them. So they have to take their luggage and they have to check it. But the bottom line is I'm looking at all this stuff being crated on and then stuck in these overhead bins. And part of me is saying, okay, why? Now, I was thinking about this because there's a story that, that broke yesterday. And it's one of these stories involving, this is United Airlines, and a woman who's traveling with her mother. Um, and her mother's like a Russian emigre or something, so she doesn't speak English very well, and, and they're traveling. And they've got one of these big bags that, depending on how you stuff it, you know, at the airport, you know, before you get on the plane, they've got, you know, one of these, you know, they'll have like the sample bin, and you're supposed to put the thing in and to see whether it fits or not. Um, th- this bag is so big that it... It, it either does or doesn't. 
It just kind of depends on how you position it. And if you position, the, I guess, if you position the bag just exactly right and the bag sucks in its gut, you know, and you push it down, it'll fit. You know, it's kind of like, all right, you wear a size 38 waist and, you know, the, the pants are size 36 or 35. You know, it's not necessarily comfortable. But if you suck in your gut, you know, maybe you can you can get it in there. This is that kind of bag. You know, it, 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 you can fit it if you fit it just exactly right and you push it around you can get it into that bin well okay so what happens is you know they they show up they want to take this giant thing on uh the gate agent puts it in the bin it doesn't fit the woman says no this fits and then they start having this argument and uh they go back and forth over this she pulls out her camera um again videoing this whole thing Ultimately, by the time they get to the third gate agent, the guy's positioning this, and he's able to, yeah, okay, I can see how we get it in. And they let the lady get on the plane. Well, she's still hacked off, so she sends out the video. And now the, the story is United Passenger records heated exchange with rude airline staff over carry-on bag. Well, okay, the staff is probably a little rude, but at the same time, they're trying to board a plane, and they've got this lady who's trying to take on a bag, which... If it fits in the thing, it just fits in, in the thing. But I was watching this. I mean, I saw stuff similar to this play out over and over again. And the truth of the matter is, if on the flights I was on on Delta, if the people, the flight agents, had been more perhaps aggressive in trying to look at some of the bags that I saw people trying to bring on these planes, I, I think that there'd be a lot more of saying, hey, this can't fit. Because I swear, I saw at least a half dozen people, you know, bringing all this stuff on. And, and clearly, it, it didn't fit. You know, it was beyond this. They were taking up more space than they were entitled to. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You know, it's taken me a while to come to this conclusion, but I, I do believe, that it would be faster, easier, and in general, in general, much less of a hassle if the airline simply said, we're not allowing you to bring these bags on. You know, if, if you've got a purse or you've got, you know, a carry-on that fits under the seat, fine, that that's great. But, you know, luggage that clearly should be checked, your suitcases or whatever, no, check them. I think it would make it quicker to load the planes. I think it would make it quicker to get off the planes. And I think, in general, it might make it safer. As we were flying, it was the um, Atlanta to Key West leg. There's this, this lady. I'm, I'm sitting on the aisle, right? And there's this lady who wants to stuff this giant monster of a bag on the in the overhead bin over over me and I'm watching her kind of lift this thing up and I I'm thinking okay this thing's going to fall on my head and there you know I, I'm going to end up with compressed vertebrae because I'm, I'm thinking all right I, she can barely lift the thing 414-799-1620 let's start with Dennis in Oak Creek Dennis you're on WTMJ good afternoon Dennis yes, it's, uh, it's funny I was just having this conversation with my daughter about the same thing I don't understand why people uh, can't check their bags, the bigger ones. You still have to go get your transportation, which is usually down by the carousels anyhow. Right. And, you know, they're trying to jam everything into these compartments. 
Right, the compartments fill up. The compartments fill up. People get testy about this type of stuff. It takes a. It takes longer to board the plane. It takes longer to get off the plane, and you get into fights on the plane because people are trying to bring uh, again, you know, all the contents of their bedroom and stick it into this particular suitcase. <laughs> I, yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you totally. Yeah, no, th- thanks for calling. And I mean, I, I just watched this whole thing, you know, play out. Okay, we're going to take, we're going to, we've got jam phone lines. If you're on the line, hold on. We continue. I mean, this was my experience. And again, I, I saw this thing, this woman on United, she's complaining. Okay, the, the, the gate agents, all right, maybe they were a little bit rude, but they're dealing with this woman who's trying to take this bag that really probably doesn't fit. Just check the darn thing. We're back with more in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. 152, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Two oh nine, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're going. What? What is that? That FM thing that Belinda is talking about? Well, it's because for the last several days, and now moving into the future, you can not only listen to us on the biggest stick in the state, AM six twenty, but you can also listen to us on our FM translator signal which is a simulcast of the AM broadcast at 103.3. So people are saying, why did you do this? Is TMJ moving the FM? No, 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 no. This is the biggest stick in the state. But believe it or not, there are some people who just don't even know that there's an AM dial out there. So this is additive. It's our ability to kind of reach some of those folks as well. And, of course, you can listen to us on the Internet. There's all sorts of ways to do this. But uh, if you are driving around and you're fooling around with your presets, um, it, the signal strength is not the signal strength that you get with WTMJ. But, um, you know, in the immediate area, you, you can, comes in pretty clear, I think. So, and we're, we're always tweaking it a little bit, but, um, you know, 620, AM 620 is here to stay, but this is just, again, it's additive. That's how I explain it. All right. The, there is an election coming up that is extremely important i believe election day it's the first tuesday in april i believe that is april 3rd it is actually the tuesday after our our wednesday march 28th uh, insight 2018 there is an election that everybody will be able to vote for and that is for the state supreme court this is an extremely important election because as we have seen in wisconsin over the last I don't know, eight years or so, what typically happens is you have conservatives that you know control government since the election of Scott Walker. What you have is the liberals unable to win elections, then turn to the courts. We don't like this particular thing. We don't like that thing. And then what happens is they run to the Dane County, typically Dane County Circuit Court. Dane County Circuit Court judges are elected by Dane County voters that tend to be much more liberal than the rest of the voters in the state. And you have Dane County judges who, in general, kind of fall over themselves to try to, because the law is an art, it's not a science, um, and because these judges tend to be reflective of the people that elect them, they are much more liberal than I think most people in the state. And so, you know, they are equally appalled. You've got these activist judges who then say, well, we don't like Act 10 or we don't like this particular policy or whatever. So let's try to use the law and come up with a way to block this, despite the fact that it is the will of the people um, through their elected representatives and through the governor. Well, th- that that strategy got old because 
there is a conservative majority on the state Supreme Court. So you had one, two, three, four, however many Looney Tune decisions coming out of the Dane County Circuit Court revolving a number of involving a number of different issues, whether it's voter ID, um, whether it's uh, many of the things that had to do with Act 10, you name it. You had Dane County Circuit judges that, again, would try to block it. And then ultimately... They failed because you had the Supreme Court that were not the judicial activists. All right. So it is important who is on the Supreme Court. There's seven members of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Right now, you have five who are judicial conservatives. You have two who are activist liberals. The election in early April is for to replace one of the conservatives, Michael Gableman, Finishing his first 10-year term, he is not going to run for re-election. So you have two candidates that are running. One is Sauk County Circuit Judge Michael Skranek, who is the conservative. The other candidate, and in the primary, he finished first. The other candidate is a liberal Milwaukee County judge named Rebecca Dallet. She um, has been on the bench for a couple years. It's interesting because when the campaign first started, Dallet was trying to pretend that she wasn't a liberal. Um, but what happened is there was a guy named Tim Burns, a lefty lawyer out of Madison who was running, and he was running as an unabashed leftist. Here, uh, elect me. I'm going to be the stopgap to Scott Walker. I would have voted against this. I, it really unprecedented sort of judicial campaign because it was more like he was running for governor than state Supreme Court. wasn't like he was saying, hey, I think legally this decision is unfounded or wrong. It was like, I'm going to, you know, if Walker and the legislature does it, I'm going to be there to block it. You know, which means you should really be running for governor, not state Supreme Court. Well, Rebecca Dallet, who, again, is a liberal herself, who was originally trying, I think, to pretend to be a moderate, what she ended up then doing is I think she was afraid that she might lose the primary. She said, hey, this guy is like carving out these lefty votes. What I need to do is show my true colors and, and move to the left. And so she started doing that as well. She's been very, very – she has politicized this race in a in a – big time way and there's no question she is running as the liberal candidate and obviously typically we do not elect liberals to the state supreme court but she is hoping that in this era of well you know maybe people don't like donald trump maybe running as an activist democrat for a nonpartisan job maybe it will work now i don't know I don't know. Voters are going to decide. You're actually going to have a chance if you come to Insight 2018 on March 28th. Uh, Judge Michael Skranek is going to be there, and we're going to talk about a number of these issues. I invited his opponent, and she passed. But, you know, he, he's going to be there. But it's been interesting to me to see how this campaign ha- has has developed. What I want to talk about now is the interesting involvement of the NRA. The National Rifle Association, you know, sent out questionnaires to the various candidates seeking to do a recommendation or an endorsement for its members. Ultimately, they decided to endorse Judge Skranek. So the liberal, uh, Rebecca Dallet, she wades in and, and she's, you know, called him an extreme activist. You know, and she, together with a number of Democrat activists, demanding what was it that Skrennick promised the NRA in order to get his their endorsement? What 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 did he want to know? And we we want to see how did he answer these questionnaires and, and what did he say? So Judge Skrennick 
said, um, "Okay, I'll, I'll show you what I sent the email, what I sent the the NRA that got me their endorsement." In the email to the NRA, he said that he was a proud gun owner. He said the job of judges is to be an arbiter of the law, not policy analysts or political activists. He said this, of course, includes the Second Amendment. He says, I know firsthand the importance of upholding the rule of law, protecting public safety, and respecting the Constitution and the separation of powers. I also know about the dangers of legislating from the bench. I know firsthand the importance of upholding the rule of law, protecting public safety, respecting the Constitution and the separation of powers. I also know about the dangers of legislating from the bench. And in response to that, the the NRA decided to, you know, endorse endorse him. Dalit is using this support to try to raise money from for her campaign, um, uh, again, accusing him of doing the bidding of special interests. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me make two points here. First of all, I don't think there is anything wrong at all with what Judge Skranek said to the NRA. Matter of fact, this is the only, I think, reasonable response that a judicial candidate should have. Namely, that judges are supposed to be arbiters of the law, not policy analysts or political activists, and that includes the Second Amendment. All right, that's number one. That is, I think, the appropriate response. Secondly, this idea that, well, he's endorsed by the NRA, that means he's going to do their bidding. I think that is the tactics and the argument of somebody who is desperate. All right, 414-799-1620. All right, will an NRA endorsement hurt Judge Srenik as he battles to try to, again, retain a conservative seat on the state Supreme Court? 414-799-1620. Candidly, I think this whole thing is a tempest in a teapot. It is once again an effort to make political points and score political points, hoping that somehow Wisconsin voters can be hoodwinked into putting... I don't know, an activist judge on the bench. 414-799-1620, I don't think it's going to work. Will an NRA endorsement hurt the conservative candidate for the Supreme Court? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 219. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 223, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, here's an ominous text. Times are changing, NRA old people. Young people will be voting soon. All right, uh, so I guess gun owners, look out. Young people are coming for you. Actually, Sam has a great point and kind of wraps this thing up. This will only backfire on the liberal activist judge because she is essentially telling law-abiding gun owners, I'm coming to get you. And that is precisely what this is. You have the conservative Supreme Court candidate, Michael Scranock, saying, look, I, I mean, here, here's I, I'm not a policy analyst. I'm not a politician. I'm not a political activist. I'm running to be a judge. Now, I'm a gun owner, but I view my job to be an arbiter of the law. And that also includes the Second Amendment. 
I'm not interested in legislating from the bench. I'm going to uphold the rule of law. I'm going to protect public safety, and I'm going to respect the Constitution and separation of powers, which is exactly what you want to hear, at least in my opinion, from somebody who wants to be on the state's highest court, particularly with so much at stake. And, you know, essentially, when you have somebody that decides, gee, I'm going to use that as a basis to run against them, um, the texter is absolutely right. You've got Rebecca Dallet, who is the liberal Milwaukee County judge, essentially saying, hey, gun owners, you know, you, you should beware. I mean, I'm uh, NRA, gun owners, people who support the Second Amendment, be prepared. I'm coming for you. See, this is the problem that you get into. Because, again, what, what happened is, when she first announced she was going to run, she wanted to try to portray herself as something that she's obviously not, which is a moderate. But because you had the other big-time lefty out of Madison that was running, she had to move further and further to the left, arguably showing her full her true colors. Now, now you can't go back. So now the die is cast, and obviously what she's hoping is that there's enough people who are, I guess, unhappy with President Trump or whatever, that they're going to elect a liberal to the state Supreme Court. I don't know. Candidly, the last thing I think you need is an activist judge on the court who would strike down Act 10, who would try to find ways to block different initiatives. That's the last thing you need is a liberal Milwaukee County judge joining two liberal um, justices on the Supreme Court to form a voting block. Just saying. All right. When we come back, Wisconsin Kringle and boys wrestling girls. Stick around. It's 225. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Wisconsin Kringle. Transgender wrestling coming up in just a minute. Before that, though, before we leave the topic of courts. Sleepy little Ozaki County. I mean, it's just, this is, the story's starting to go into the mainstream. It's kind of been floating around. There was a several hundred-page report about this which was released a couple weeks ago, um, but the local newspaper just picked up on this story. <clears throat> Milwaukee, Ozaki County has three judges. One is Sandy Williams. I have known Sandy for decades. She is the long-term uh, district attorney from Ozaki County who um, became a judge a few years back. Um, then you have the chief judge, Paul Malloy, who's been on the bench for a while. And then you have a, a, a new judge. New, he's been on the bench for a couple of years. His name is Joe Voland. He, he got elected. He ran against a, a long-term judge named Tom Wolfgram. Wolfgram lost. Because in a moment of absolute and complete stupidity, and yes, I use that word, Wolfgram decided to sign the Scott Walker recall petition. You remember this? And so, I mean, really the sole and, – and Wolfgram, I, I think – I think you can argue maybe it stayed on the bench too long, but but the issue in his reelection in very conservative Ozaki County was he signed the Scott Walker recall petition, and, and Joe Volan ran against him, and that was pretty much the issue, and voters overwhelmingly tossed Wolf Graham out, bringing Voland onto the bench. Now, there's a couple things that went on. Voland is one of these guys who, <clears throat> I get the sense, doesn't really work and play well with others. Okay, so that's that that's part of the thing. And on top of that, he was this outsider who, who came in, and there's kind of an old boys and girls network up there, and he came in to kind of shake things up. And 
uh, as some of the things didn't necessarily need to be shook up, but, you know, he, he was sort of there. Plus, he kind of disturbed the old boys and girls network. But again, he's sort of a flamethrower. And so th- this it's gotten into to be quite a patent place. Now, apparently, the, the judges... They, they, the three of them don't meet anymore. They communicate in writing, so there's no question about what was said. There's apparently a, a chill between Voland and the clerk of courts. There's various investigations that are going on. It is a complete and total dysfunctional mess in Ozaki County. Now, Dane County, you could understand. Milwaukee County, eh, Milwaukee County is probably beyond hope. But Ozaki County... And it does sound like it's as much personality as anything else. But um, I I don't know. Maybe in the next election, that's going to all get straightened out. All right. When we come back, Wisconsin Kringle and transgender wrestling. It's 2.35. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. There's a new way to listen to WTMJ on the FM dial. Breaking news, traffic reports, weather updates, and your favorite Wisconsin sports teams Always on AM at 620 and now on FM at 103.3 in your car, in your home with Alexa or from the stands. You can now listen to all of us. I noticed in that promo they don't mention your favorite talk shows as well, but I'm on there too. You can listen to us on AM and FM. That's AM at 620 and FM at 103.3. All right. I've been curious. I want to set aside one segment to get your reaction to this. Um, Kringle, Racine Kringle is really kind of good stuff, all right? And there's various bakeries that make Racine Kringle. Um, probably, I want to say the most successful bakery that does it is O&H Danish Bakery. They're, and I, I'm not dissing any of the other bakeries, okay? But o- O&H, um, very, very successful. They're based out of out of Mount Pleasant. All right, so for a number of years, actually going back to, to 2013, O&H, which is a long-standing bakery, they have made a product called Wisconsin Kringle. And it, the, the name has been trademarked. You know, trademarked Wisconsin Kringle, and they call it Wisconsin Kringle because it, it utilizes flavors and products that are closely associated with the state of Wisconsin, like cheese, cherries, and, and cranberries. So it, it's, I was wondering, it's, does it have like brats and beer in it? No, no, but it's, but it's like using Wisconsin products. So they call it Wisconsin Kringle, and they've trademarked the name Wisconsin Kringle. All right, so here's, here's the problem, or at least the alleged problem. There's, there's this new company that started up. What, what they say in the lawsuit is that there was a guy who managed this restaurant in Oak Creek that sold O&H products, including Wisconsin Kringle, at the restaurant. And the lawsuit says the guy, as, as a restaurant manager and as a customer of O&H, learned O&H's marketing strategies, learned their sales rates, and learned the popularity of the various O&H products, including Wisconsin Kringle. And so then this guy who ran the restaurant wanted to go into, he decided he's going to go into the Kringle business as a competitor. And so he started Wisconsin Kringle Company. Now, again, ONH makes a particular brand of Kringle, which is called Wisconsin Kringle. So this guy who was a customer now has become a competitor. Um, 
he's now got a business called the Wisconsin Kringle Company, and he's competing with O&H. O&H has filed a lawsuit accusing him of trying to capitalize on the efforts O&H has undertaken to promote the Wisconsin Kringle brand by appropriating the name Wisconsin Kringle as part of the company. So their argument is this guy, you know, we, we have we make Wisconsin Kringle. That is a brand. He started the Wisconsin Kringle company. People are going to buy Wisconsin Kringle from him thinking that they're really buying our product, our trademarked name. He says, then they say that this is going to cause confusion. They went to him. They said, hey, we want you to change your name. He has refused. And now there is this lawsuit. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I am just curious. Do you think, without getting into the nuances of trademark law, and believe me, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you can spend your entire life doing trademark law, and, and still not get all there is to trademark law. So, so I, I don't want you to, you know, analyze, okay, what's the law, you know, what should be, how should this turn out? I, I just want you to go with your gut. O&H Bakery has been making since 2013 a product they call Wisconsin Kringle. That's the name of the product. It is apparently one of their most popular products. Here you have a man who was a customer of O&H, who's now decided to become a competitor. He started a business calling his business Wisconsin Kringle. O&H says this is confusing, and he's essentially trying to steal from us. Um, he's going to bootstrap on us. People will buy arguably his product, thinking they're buying our Wisconsin Kringle. How should this, in your mind, without, again, going into the nuances and the depths of trademark law, do you think O&H has a point? Or, you know, Wisconsin Kringle, should you be able to call yourself, I, I don't know, if, if I, I want to say Milwaukee Beer, should I be able to do that, even though you've got other companies that have been brought, who have been advertising, hey, we're Milwaukee's beer for years and years. 414-799-1620. Just give me your gut reaction to this. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 241. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'm just curious how you gut level, without knowing anything about trademark law, how you react to this. O&H Bakery, prominent Kringle maker down in Mount Pleasant, for the last five years has had a very successful product. It's called Wisconsin Kringle. That's the name of the product. It, it has Wisconsin things in it. You have a guy who ran a, a restaurant in Oak Creek. He was, you know, he bought it. He's a customer of the Kringle company, and he's decided now he wants to go into the Kringle business. And so he's calling his Kringle company Wisconsin Kringle Company. Um, so... O&H is saying, wait a second, we, we, Wisconsin Kringle is trademarked. You can't call yourself Wisconsin Kringle Company. People are going to think that when they're buying stuff from you, they're really buying our product. How do you react to that? 414-799-1620. Jason in Milwaukee. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. I think uh, O&H is trying to prevent history from repeating itself a little bit here uh, in the not- Far too distant past, a company called Racine Kringle right. Company came down and made the Racine Kringle, which we see in a lot of the grocery stores around here. Uh, there used to be a handshake agreement in Racine with a lot of the bakeries that they could put Racine Kringle on their bags. 
Racine Kringle came in and trademarked it and said, no, you can't. And they all had to go through and change all of their, all of their bags at all of the bakeries to remove Racine Kringle off of there because they were in violation of a trademark on there. So I think ONH is trying to prevent this from happening to them again. Right. Do you think that they should be able to do that? Um, it's not like they're saying O&H Kringle. They're saying Wisconsin Kringle. So they're using, you know, the, the state of Wisconsin. Do you think you should be able to protect yourself? And, and do you think you should be able to call something Wisconsin Widgets or Wisconsin Beer and then have nobody else be able to use that term? I think so. I, if they came up with it and that's the way they're marketing it, they should be able to trademark that. Okay, thanks to call, 414-799-1620. And again, it, it gets tricky here because typically, and he was making the, alluding the example of Racine Kringle, typically if if it's a place as opposed to, you know, an, an individual name, um, you know, it, it's difficult to get trademark protection for a place, but... Um, you know, who knows? 414-799-1620. I'm curious as to how you react. Joe in Franklin. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. What do you think? I guess, I guess the way I see it is, is O&H is the name of the company that produces the Kringle named Wisconsin Kringle. Yes. And this other company's name is the Wisconsin Kringle Company. Yes. One of the products, one of the company. Yes. So that's, that's that's the way I'm kind of looking at that. You know, one's so, a product and one's a company. Well, okay. So, 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 so what? What's? Let's say then that the Wisconsin Kringle Company, all right, that the the competitor, now starts rolling out a bunch of Kringle and and it and they just call their product Wisconsin Kringle as well. You know, could they? You know, it's, you know, it, Wisconsin Kringle, and right. they start putting that out there. Um, O&H has its own version of Wisconsin Kringle. Is is there a possibility of confusion? Should they be able to do that? What Again, what if, if the new company just says, hey, we're going to call our product Wisconsin Kringle after the company? Well, they already got that Wisconsin Kringle trademark, you know. Yeah. Players, and... I think they'd have a little bit of trouble. <laughs> okay, no, I think no. See, I guess that's see that that's where the issue is. I mean, if if it if let's say the new company, uh, Wisconsin Kringle Company, just puts out the Kringle, but you know they, they don't they just say Wisconsin Kringle pecan. All right, does that create confusion with O and H's own Wisconsin Kringle? I, I, you know that that's where this becomes you know interesting, and it raises the whole question of can you and should you be able to to trademark a a place as opposed now obviously this would be pretty simple I think if my producer grew decided he had you know it it was he trademarked the name grew Kringle and then somebody wanted to create a, a business called the grew Kringle company in that case, I think it's pretty easy because you're talking about his name. Or at least the name I have given him, uh, you know. But but it's it's different when it's a, is it different when it's a place four one four seven nine nine one six twenty Myron in Montello Myron you're on WTMJ hello Myron okay lost Myron Tom in Greenfield Tom good afternoon how you doing here Jeff I'm good what do you think well maybe maybe the taste is in the, in the product uh, maybe uh, you know just like you having a, somebody uh, comes up on the street and sells you a, a what do you call that uh, a high price watch, and all of a sudden it's a knockoff, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe the same thing with this uh, Kringle, the same thing. Maybe t- uh, the taste is in the pudding, you know? Uh, hey, is it is it good, or does it taste as good as the product that, mm-hmm. that 
that's, an, that's named for, you know? Well, yeah, I, th- I think, though, Tom, I, I mean, I think the concern that O&H has is that, hey, people are going to buy th- – th- their concern is that people are going to buy this new product, this Wisconsin Kringle Company product, thinking that they're buying O&H Wisconsin Kringle. And if they don't like it as well, then they're going to be mad at O&H or, or, or whatever. So this is – I mean, this is where the dynamics – come in and that's kind of the basis of the lawsuit plus i mean i think they're alleging that the guy you know learned inside trade secrets and stuff like that i that that i don't know about but i do think it's interesting you know should you be able to trademark that name mary in illinois mary good afternoon hello um, Hi. i i'm from schaumburg illinois mm-hmm. and i've been listening to your debate right and i uh, we have in our stores the wisconsin kringle and people here know racine kringle We've known it for years, but now uh, they market in our stores, Wisconsin Kringle. And I'm definitely uh, concerned about this because I do think that people would be very confused to mm-hmm. have another one named Wisconsin Kringle. Yeah, so you think that there would be quite like there would be customer confusion. This one bakery makes the Wisconsin Kringle, and all of a sudden if you had Wisconsin Kringle Company, and they called themselves Wisconsin Kringle as well, people wouldn't know what they were buying. People... Mm-hmm. I'm certain that people down here would have no idea whatsoever. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, what? think, they think one equals the other. Right. Okay. Uh, thanks so for the call. I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Mary. I appreciate the call. I, um, you know, I, l- let me give you two analyses of this. First, um, I, I said we weren't going to delve deeply into trademark law, um, but it's very difficult to trademark names of places. Matter of fact, the, the law is is pretty clear that if if you're going to if you're going to try to to trademark the name of a place, a term referring to you know geography, um, that the, the way the law works is, is they can only be protected as trademarks if they have what they call acquired a secondary meaning, which means that customers have come to use a geographically descriptive word um, in a secondary sense of denoting only one source of goods. In other words, if you're if you're selling Northwoods beer, um, people understand that just to be one form of Northwoods beer. It's a very, very tough standard, which makes me think that O&H is going to have trouble in pursuing this. Having said that, though, there's no question about it that this seems kind of sleazy to me. Regardless of, of whether or not, you know, O&H can legally successfully sue, it does seem to me that this Wisconsin Kringle Company is trying to bootstrap onto the O&H product, create confusion, and take advantage of it. Now, I take no position on the lawsuit, whether O&H is going to be able to enforce a trademark and block it, but... Um, I guess my reaction would be, just given the stuff that's going on, if I'm in the bakery, I'm going to be looking for the real O&H stuff. Just saying. It's 2.53. This is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, big day for John McCure. We've got a radiothon coming on. Um, It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to let him tell you all about it in just a couple minutes. It is 2.53. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.